you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 10, please turn with me. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll be putting some things up here on the board. Let me start off with this. How many of you have a dominant brother or sister? Yes? Okay. How many of you are the dominant brother or sister? All right. Very good. Now, last week we talked about you, okay? Last week we talked about Peter, and if you're a dominant personality, you probably need to make sure you pick up that message from last week and listen to it again. It's online if you haven't heard it, but you need that. Now, today here's what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about Andrew, and Andrew gets the privilege of being Simon Peter's brother, what a tough deal, man. That's, you're talking about a dominant personality, and here you are now, Andrew. And here's what you're going to find throughout scriptures as you're finding Matthew chapter 10. And you can also find John chapter 1, because we're going to flip over there in just a minute. Here's what you're going to find about Andrew. Andrew, every time he's referenced in scripture, is Andrew the brother of. What a bummer. I mean, the brother of. That's, it's as if it gives you validity, right? Or... Somehow, nobody else is going to know who you are because you're obviously you know, nobody unless you're Simon Peter's brother. That's Andrew. Now, Andrew's name means manly. Now, if you have a name that means manly, one, either you have to become manly or either you are manly, right? It's like calling somebody tough. You better be tough or everybody's going to prove it that you're not tough and then you have to earn it. I have an uncle named Tough. That's what his nickname is. We call him Uncle Tough. Why? Because he's big, he's tough. That's what you call him. He can wrestle cows and all those fun things. So Uncle Tough. Now, Andrew is named Manly. All right, so he's Manly. Here's what we know about Andrew. Andrew obviously grew up around a strong personality with Simon Peter. If you are around a strong personality and you don't become a little callous and a little bit strong yourself, the strong personality will what? chew you up and spit you out for fun, right? So he had to, we know he had to be at least a little tough just because he grew up with Simon Peter. But after this, watch this. We also know that Andrew chooses to be around strong personalities as well. You see, his friends in scripture are called the sons of thunder. No, we're not talking about NASCAR. All right, so get that out of your mind. We're talking, Jesus called James and John the sons of what? thunder because of their wrath, because of their quick tempers. Andrew is buddies with, he's friends with, he's fishing partners with James and John. So he's hanging out with, and he's drawn to friends who are strong personalities as well. On top of that, we know that Andrew likes strong personalities because he and his friend John like to go hear a very strong preacher preach. Who's the strong preacher? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a guy who, when he would preach and as he walked around, he did not look like the normal preacher of the day, the normal rabbi. He was not wearing robes and he was not looking, you know, his best. This guy was dressed with camel's hair. Camel's hair stinks. That's not a really good natural. That's not, he's not, you know, he's not really what you would call up to date in his clothing. He's wearing a big, large leather belt, and he begins to preach. And when he preached, he's not a soft preacher. He's a preacher who's screaming out and saying what? Repent, you heathen. How many of you want to go to church like that? Repent, you heathen. Get right with God. He's coming. The Messiah's here. That's 
So you know Andrew likes strong personalities because he's drawn to preachers who are a little tougher, a little bit stronger. Also, we know this, he's a fisherman. Now, as a fisherman, here's what we know. If you're gonna be in the fishing business and on a boat all the time, you have to have somewhat good balance, correct? If you've ever been on a boat for a very long time, you know the waves are rocking and you have to have balance and you need to learn to balance. So he's somewhat at least athletic and has good balance. On top of that, the fishing that they did was not a, um, it's not with a fishing rod and a, a hook. It's with what? Nets. So they would throw the nets out and he would be pulling the nets in. So he's working his muscles or he's either using a pulley system to crank in and pull in the nets. So he's consistently using his muscles. So you know he's lean and trim. You also know he has a tan. How do you know that, Heath? Well, the Bible tells us that him and his brother, when Peter goes fishing quite often, he takes off the outer robe. And a few times, if you have the King James, it says that he's what? Naked. Now, probably not fully naked, but at least he's down to his skimpies, all right? And he's fishing. So you know they have tans as they're out there in the boat fishing all the time. He's not a weak man. Here's another thing you know. He has a remarkable smell about him. How do I know? He's a fisherman. You ever been around a professional fisherman? They smell like what? Fish. It just gets into your clothes. It gets into your hair. It gets all over. He does it day in, day out. So here comes Andrew. You can smell him. You know he's coming, all right? So he's a tough guy. He can't be, if you're dealing with fish, you can't be you know, a little squimish. You can't have a weak stomach because you're going to have to deal with guts. You're going to have to deal with scales. So this guy is used to being rough and tough. You know his hands are a little rough as well because he's cutting fish open. He's in the market of fish. So he's got tough. He's a tough dude. All right, we got the picture. This is who Andrew is. You ready? If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 10, let's stand. We got you a good introduction. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start off in verse 1, and here's what the Bible says. And he called, that's Jesus, called to him 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease, every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, you see it, his brother. Thanks a lot. And Andrew, his brother. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your blessings. God, I thank you for the chance to be able to come with other believers and to sing and to praise you. I pray that it truly came from hearts that were willing and ready to worship you. I pray that today we would see you more clearly. I pray that as your spirit moves in us at this time, that you would have freedom to speak to us where we need to hear from you. And God, I pray that you would... Rebuke us where you need to rebuke us. Encourage us where you need to encourage us. And that, Father, when we walk out of here, I pray that we can truly say that we've heard from you. And God, I pray that you give us the courage to apply what we've heard today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. All right, so here we go. If you flip over to John chapter one, John chapter one, we're gonna begin looking at Andrew. I'm gonna give you... Three thoughts about Andrew, who he is, what he is, his characteristics. I'll give you some more thoughts about him. And then after I show you these three ideas about Andrew, I'll wrap it up. I'll give us 
three things that we can apply to our lives, and then I'll finish with a story today that I think will help encourage us and take us where we need to go. So what you find in Andrew is this. In John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, his friend is writing and telling the story. This is John the fisherman, not John the Baptist. John the fisherman is writing, and he's telling about Jesus, and he's telling about what's, who Jesus is. And as he begins to tell, he begins to tell the story of Jesus. And he tells about how Jesus came when John the Baptist was preaching. And John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Do you remember this story? How that John says, no, I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, no, you must. I need to be baptized. Showing that I'm humbling myself and I'm willing to serve and do what God has called me to do. Some of you today maybe even are thinking about baptism. You're wondering, should you be baptized? Should you not? Baptism is not for salvation. Let's make sure it's very clear. Baptism does not save you, but baptism does this. It demonstrates to everyone else, yes, I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I believe that Jesus died, was buried. That's why you go under the water. And then you come back saying, I'm going to walk in a new way, in a new life. That's why you're baptized. It shows what you believe and shows what's going on. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And after he's baptized by John the Baptist, do you remember what happened? It was one of those remarkable things. Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open up, and the Holy Spirit lands on him, and then the Father says what? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Can you imagine the moment? Can you imagine what John the Baptist was thinking? Can you imagine what all the other teachers were thinking at that time? It was incredible. A month to two months later, John the fisherman and Andrew, when they finished fishing, they'd been going out to hear John the Baptist preach. And they're excited. They're finishing their fishing as fast as they can. They get over and they hear John the Baptist and they keep hearing. Day after day, they'd go out and hear this crazy man speak and teach. And this one particular time, John tells us that two of the disciples are there. That's John and Andrew are right there. And as John the Baptist is preaching, Jesus starts walking by. And John the Baptist stops and says, behold, the Lamb of God. That's the one. That's the one I've been teaching about. That's the one I'm talking about. It's the Lamb of God. That's the Messiah. That's the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. And just in case you don't know who Jesus is, let me just say he's more than a teacher. We've been talking about that. He is the true Lamb of God. And when we say Lamb of God, here's what it means. That he was God who came as a human. And in coming as a human, he was born of a virgin. Born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life. Yes, he was tempted. Yes, he was tried, just like you, with all human temptations. But the Bible tells us, yet without sin, Jesus lived. Jesus lived. He demonstrated that he had power over death, over sickness, over disease, over demon possessions. He's the Messiah. And ultimately, he goes to the cross. And on the cross, here's what we find out. That God's punishment for sin was put on Jesus. And he died to take your place and to take my place. And on the cross, the payment for sin for the entire world was paid. What an amazing thought. Jesus dies on the cross. Three days later, he rises again, proving 
that not only is he God, but proving that the payment was sufficient. You cannot earn your right to have God love you. He already loves you. You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot earn your salvation because Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And what it means for you and I today is this. If you have not ever trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, and you have never stopped and said, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for living life as if you don't exist. I'm sorry for putting other things in your place where you should rightfully be. Jesus, I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? If you've never done that, you need to do that today. Because Jesus is calling out and says, I give you this free gift. I'll forgive you. And then he says this, I'll be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I will walk with you the rest of life. What an amazing thought. Behold, that's the man. Behold, that's the Messiah. Behold, the one I'm teaching about, that's him. He's walking across the ledge. So what I love about Andrew and John is like, well, if he's the guy, then why are we sticking around here? So they leave. They start following Jesus. They start walking behind Jesus. And look what it says. Go all the way down to verse 38. John chapter one, verse 38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? What are you doing? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher. They're not convinced that he's a Messiah quite yet. Where are you staying? Isn't that a funny thing? Now, if you ask me where I live, I'll give you a general idea. But if I don't know you, I'm not telling you where my house is. I don't know. I don't know if you're gonna come stalk me or what you're gonna do. It's kind of weird. But Jesus says, You want to know where I'm staying? Come on. I'll show you where I'm staying. He said, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. I love this. Jesus says, you want to know? You want to know about me? You want to know who I am? Come on. So John and Andrew follow Jesus. And in following Jesus, they begin to speak and they get this one-on-one conversation with Jesus. And they spend the afternoon and the evening and they just speak and talk and Jesus teaches them and tells them, this is who I am. This is why I am who I am. I am the Messiah. And they walk through it all. And how do we know that? Because what happens next is this, verse 40. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I love that, isn't it? Again, seriously, everybody has to say it. Even my friend has to say my, (laughs) here I am. And then here's what we find, verse 41. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. This is where we first see something about Andrew. Andrew understood the power of influencing individuals and not just the crowds. Many times what we feel like we want to do for God is this. We want to influence large masses, large crowds, and we forget that it's about the individual. And over and over and over again, here's what you find with Andrew. Andrew brings individuals to Jesus. Yes, his brother's the brother who preached Pentecost and 3,000 get saved, but how many people get to do that? I mean, that's kind of intimidating, right? Oh, yeah, my, my brother's Billy Graham. <laughs> That's just tough. And yet, Peter is introduced to Jesus by who? Andrew. Andrew goes and says, you've got to come and see. 
and he cared more about the individual. Watch this. Again, later on in John chapter 12, you'll see there's a group of Greeks who are coming who are wanting to meet Jesus. And in wanting to meet Jesus, they ask Philip, hey, Philip, can you introduce us to Jesus? And Philip says, yes, just a minute. And he goes over here and guess who he gets? Jesus? No. Andrew says, hey, Andrew, can you introduce these people to Jesus? And Andrew comes over. Hey, I hear that you're wanting to know Jesus. I hear that you're wanting to know who Jesus is. Come on, boys, I'll show you. And he brings another group of people to Jesus. One pastor said that evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Isn't that good? That's Andrew here. He's not standing up doing mass evangelism. He's not doing the, what everybody's gonna go, oh, that was awesome. Oh, that was amazing. Oh, all he's doing is simply bringing and inviting and saying, here, let me share who Jesus is. And here he is introducing the individual more than the crowd. Flip over to John chapter six. Let me show you another one. I like this about Andrew. He not only sees the individual, he also sees the crowd. Uh, he, he does see the crowd, but here's what he also knows. He sees availability. And he sees the power of what is in front of him at the moment. Let me give you the story. Here's the story. John chapter six, John records the feeding of the 5,000. Now, many of you automatically know what's gonna happen. You already know the story. You already know the conclusion, but would you walk with me just for a moment? Here's what we find in John chapter six, verse two, a large crowd was following Jesus. And because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the uh, Jews was at hand and lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, this is Jesus being ornery. You ever seen Jesus be ornery? This is Jesus kind of instigating a little bit of a conversation, trying to get his disciples to maybe have more creative thinking, okay? So he asked Philip, he said, hey, Philip, look at these crowds. Now, remember, if there's 5,000 men, then there's probably what? Some wives along, right? There's probably some kids along. So you could be looking at anywhere from 5,000 to 10,000 to 15,000, depending on how far this thing goes. Now that's a lot of people. So when you see a large crowd coming, you would know that 5,000 people are coming. You would know that 10,000 people are coming. And Jesus for fun, because John says this, verse six, Jesus asked this question to test him for Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Isn't that funny? Jesus already knows, and he just asked the question, so where are you gonna get enough food to feed everybody? Ah, Jesus, that's a great question. So Philip starts doing the math. Philip starts kind of walking through, okay, if we had 200 denarius, denarius would be one day's pay. If we had 200 days pay, 200 days wages, Jesus, that's just not enough. And so he's racking his brain, there's not enough. There's, we're limited by the resources. We're limited by, we don't have that kind of money. We're limited by the city. Even if we got into a city that was close enough, and there's really not even one close enough, the baker couldn't provide enough food. So Jesus, obviously, you're nuts. We can't do it. This is impossible. And Andrew and all the other disciples, they're all looking, and Andrew does something very different. Because most of us, when we're faced with, with obstacles, what do we do? 
we see the obstacle, we see the impossibilities, we go through it. And all the other disciples are looking around and going, uh, I don't know, I can't do it, I don't know. But if Jesus commands something, if Jesus asks something of you, then what, do you, what does he do? He always gives you the resources to do it, always. So Andrew does something so amazing. Andrew stops looking around and saying, we can't do it, and what does he do? He starts looking for what's in front of him and what's available at this time. Huge lesson. Because God is asking you to do something in your life. He's already put in front of you what you need to get started. Catch that, that was good. Write it down. Because often what we wanna do is we wanna start something new and we wanna start a new ministry. We wanna start something and we say, we gotta do this, we gotta do this and we gotta get all these new things and yet to get started, you already have in front of you what you need to get started. Because Jesus never asks you to do something unless he's already provided the way. Mm -hmm, That's good. Jesus. Man, he's, he's just amazing, isn't he? he? He's gonna ask you, sometimes he'll even put something in your heart and give you a vision for something and say, you need to do this. And you're going, all right, yeah. And as soon as you start trying, the impossibilities are gonna begin to mound and they're gonna become a mountain and you can't move that mountain. And all he's doing is he's trying to test you and say, okay, can you really trust me? And that's what Jesus was trying to do. So Andrew does something that no other disciple does. He says, what's in front of us? What's available right now? And Andrew goes, and do you see what he does? Andrew gets a little boy. I love it. Go down to verse nine, or verse eight. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, stop saying that, right? We know who Andrew is, but Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, here's a boy. He has five barley loaves, two fish, but what are they among so many? Even Andrew's struggling with this. Okay, Jesus, there's a lot of people here. There's thousands of people. I brought you what we have available. There's no other food around. Here's what's available. And you know the story, and we go there so fast, but how often are we right in the middle of life going, God, it doesn't look like this little gift is enough. God, it doesn't look like what I have. It doesn't look like my talents are enough. Have you been there? And you just sit there and you're going, God, it just seems impossible. But here it is anyway. And that's what Andrew says. Here it is anyway. This is what we have. And then Jesus does what's amazing. Jesus said, all right, have the people sit down. Here we go. You're about to see something fun. You're about to see something exciting. You're about to see something that you never thought possible. Now, I have a friend. He's here today. And I'm just going to pick on him for a minute. He's a rocket scientist. And um, here's what he, told, he, he was telling us, that he sat down for, for fun to figure out the energy that it would take to multiply the bread every time it broke, multiply it every time the fish broke and multiply it. Now, he said it was easy. And I said, there's no way it's easy. He said, Heath, you can do that kind of math. Obviously, he's never seen me do math, all right? But he he walks through it and he said, it took him about, I think an hour of all the people and everything. And here's what he said. The power that was generated by the multiplying and the breaking, he said it would take 17 atomic bombs, that same equivalent of power. It's not the size of the gift. It's the size of the God. Did you catch that? And we get stumped with the size of the gift often. And we stop and we never make it available and we never 
allow God to do something that he wants to do. And he multiplies it. And not only did he multiply it, everybody had enough food to eat. They even take up extras. I love leftovers. Oh, so awesome. Man, you warm it up, it's like a meal all over again. And sometimes the juices are even better the next day or three days or even a week later. It's marinated. (laughs) All right, here we go. We'll keep going. All right, so here's what you see. You go to Matthew chapter 10 again. Let me show you one more thing and then we're gonna start wrapping it up. Matthew chapter 10. Go back to Matthew chapter 10 and I've pointed it out and I'm just gonna say it one more time. Watch this, Matthew chapter 10. And I want you to just let this sink in. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his... Okay. Andrew had to learn. And Andrew did quite well leading from the second position. He had to learn how to lead from the second position. Because I guarantee you, he wasn't just a a mild man. He was a strong man. He was a man who was actually driven in his own rights, but he had to learn to take the second position. A great orchestra conductor said that the hardest position to fill in the orchestra is what? The second chair. Everybody wants the first chair, but it's the second chair that's the hardest because nobody wants it, but yet it's the second chair that makes the whole orchestra sound full. And when the second chair is playing terribly, the entire orchestra and everybody in the building knows it. And Andrew, throughout his career and throughout his life, he had to learn to be second and to lead from the second position. After Pentecost, he's never mentioned again. His brother becomes the the rock, the pillar of the early church. And Andrew is, well, I don't know. Eusebius, the, the great historian, He writes that Andrew goes north. He leaves Jerusalem. I guess he had to get away from Simon Peter. He leaves Jerusalem and he goes up into what's Russia and he becomes a patron saint of Russia. So by no means is he a man who did little. He goes in and and he leads many to the Lord up in Russia and he also becomes a patron saint of Scotland. His end, the end of his life, this is what we're told by tradition, is that he was back down around Athens, Greece. And around Athens, Greece, he led a woman to the Lord. Her husband was the Roman governor of that province. And Andrew leads his wife to the Lord. And after leading his wife to the Lord, the Roman governor demands that she recount and denounce Jesus. And she said, no this is the way and this is the one I need to follow. And so in order to take it out on his wife, he captures Andrew and has Andrew put to death on a cross, an X-shaped cross at that. Even at the end of his life, he's still bringing people to Jesus. Can God use average people? The resounding answer should be what? Yes, God can use average people over and over again. He does it throughout history. Let me give you three things and we'll finish up. The very first is this. These action steps are just to help remind us and maybe give us some lessons to to really take home. The first is 
Most people come to Jesus because of an individual, not a crowd. You need to hear it again and again. Most people are not one to Christ, do not accept Jesus Christ sitting in a church or even in, in a great revival. Do you know where they accept Christ? Individual, one-on-one. Over and over again, that's where it happens. Because one person shares with another person saying, hey, this is what happened to me and this is what's going on. You need Jesus in your life. Why do you need Jesus in your life? Look what he's done for me. Look how he's changed my life. We tried to help resource you over the last few weeks, even this last year. You remember the cards we talked about, the four, the oaks branches out, your four. If you don't have your four and you can't remember who your four are, it's probably time to start with another four. Four. Four people that you're investing in, four people that you're praying for, four people that you are working on and asking God to work in their life to either get them to church or to get them to Jesus. Four people. We've also resourced you with several other things. We sent out an email. Did you see the email this week about the Saturday night service that allows you to, to um, how many of you got that? Yes, you saw that? A few people? Okay, if you did not get it, you're not on our email list, so take your connection card and give us your email and we'll send it to you. But it gives you a chance to email that, that invite through all your e- emails. That's a lot of contacts, so you can immediately, quite easily post it, put it there. We're also working on Facebook to be able to post um, What's going on uh, as far as the Saturday night service? Saturday night service is starting September 8th. Maybe you're saying, hey, I don't want to really want to promote the Saturday night service. Then talk about the Sunday morning service. It gives you a chance. Now, here's what we've done. We've printed out these little business cards. These little business cards are really sharp. They look nice. On the back, it has a map. The reason we have a map is because sometimes it's hard to find this place. You ever had that happen? Last week, I had a high school buddy I hadn't seen since one year after high school. He came over to the church last week, and he worshiped with us. So excited to see him. But he drove around, couldn't find the place. It took him a while. Sometimes the GPS shows, shows you that you're supposed to be across the street. So the map is very important. All right, so we put that on there. Take a card. Take five. Take ten. Pass it out. Let people know that you're proud to be a Christian. Let your people know, hey, I want to talk about Christ. Hey, let them know that. You want to make sure they're going to church. If they go to church already, that's great. Let them stay where they're at. But if they don't go to church, aha, it's a wide open door. Be, be, have fun with it. Slide it into their, well, don't slide it into their wallets. That might be kind of creepy. But slide it into a book or slide it into something. Pass it on. Let them know. Uh, I got neighbors I'm so excited about that um, I'm inviting and I'm excited to see if they might come. Been working on them on so many different angles. And so the Saturday night, you know what it does? It gave me another opportunity to say, hey, by the way, you can't, I haven't seen you on Sundays. Maybe you can't come on Sunday. I've got an option for you, Saturday night. Have you ever thought about coming on Saturday night? Had that conversation yesterday or Friday when I was mowing the yard. Lots of fun. It gives you a chance. We want to make sure you're you're resourced. The second thing, second thing is this. Here's a lesson we can learn. God is not limited by the greatness of the gift, but by the availability of the gift. Your faithfulness, your sacrifice, God takes that and he multiplies it over and over again. That's the story in scripture that Jesus can take the small. And so many times we decide not to give. We decide not to use our talents. We decide because we think, ah, I really don't have much to offer and we don't offer it. But when you actually make it available to the Messiah, when you make it available to Jesus, he's able to take it and do above and beyond. Number three, support roles are places of significant ministry. 
you find yourself in a support role, can I just say this? Make sure you understand that your place is vital. Your place is key. Whether you feel like, hey, you know what? I'm just down here helping the kids. I don't really even teach the class. I'm just helping. We've had guests over and over again say the reason they come back is because their kids wake them up and say, are we going to church today? It happens because you are actually getting involved and you're doing what you can. Just because you don't have an out front ministry doesn't mean it's not important. The support role matters. Let me say it another way. Leaders, front leaders are only as successful as those who closely support him. If those who closely support don't really want him to succeed, he or her, that leader will not succeed. The support matters. And whatever place you find yourself in, it matters. And let me give you this last story and we're wrapping up. How many of you have ever heard of Edward Kimball? Anybody? That was the same response in the first service. Probably shouldn't know him. He was a Sunday school teacher in Boston in 1850. So if you didn't grow up around Boston, you probably never heard of him. He was a Sunday school teacher. That's who he was. He was a very shy and timid man. There was a young man who came to his class a few times. He was 19 years old, and here's how he described him. He was crude and obviously illiterate. Kimball began to be concerned for this young man. He began to pray for him. And one day, here's what Kimball writes. I decided to speak to the young man about Christ and about his soul. So I started downtown to Halton Shoe Store where the young man worked. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy and that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was and then began to make fun out of the young man. While I was pondering over all of this, I past the store without even noticing it. Then when I found that I had gone past the door, I determined to make a dash for it. I love it. He was just going to leave. I just, I went ahead and missed it. I was just going to miss it, go all the way. But then he decided to turn back and go back into the store. He goes into the store and here's what Kimball continues to say with limping words. I can't remember what I said, something about Christ, something about his love. That's all I remember. He admitted the appeal was very weak. But that day in that shoe store, a young man, 19 years old, accepted Christ. His name, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody continued in that young man's Sunday school class for a little while. After that, he moves to Chicago and he begins to preach. He begins to teach others. He becomes a great evangelist. He goes over to England. In England, he begins to preach, and a young preacher, Frederick, was tired, worn out, figuring the ministry was not for him. He went and heard D.L. Moody preach, and the fire that D.L. Moody spoke with, God began to minister and say, Frederick, I want to use you too. Frederick then commits to begin preaching, teaching. He goes on to write many books. You might know him as F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer, if you see one of his books today, I encourage you to pick it up. F.B. Meyer, later on in his ministry, comes over to America, preaches in a liberal seminary in Pennsylvania. There was a young man that day, as F.B. Meyer spoke, who committed his life to full-time ministry. His name, William Chapman. 
he begins to preach and becomes a great evangelist as well. As he's preaching, one time, a young outfielder for the Chicago White Sox came to one of the meetings, trusted Jesus Christ as his personal savior. After going to several meetings, Chapman asked the young man, would you please think about and consider what God's calling you to do with your life? Billy Sunday is his, his name. Billy Sunday goes around and begins to preach and teach. As Billy Sunday's ministry begins to come to a close, a young man named Mordecai Ham began to preach and follow Billy Sunday quite closely. Mordecai Ham was a, not as well known as some of the other preachers, but there was a group of people in North Carolina, farmers, farmers who couldn't really quite read, didn't have much going for them at all, but they could pray and they were praying that God would send a revival that would turn the world upside down. And in praying for the world to be turned upside down, they called Billy Sunday and asked Billy Sunday to come and preach. And Billy Sunday said, I can't, but Mordecai Ham can. Mordecai Ham came and preached that service. And in preaching that service, it was that, morning, that evening, the church was filled. A 17-year-old slender man, boy, walked into that church, couldn't find a seat, and had to sit in the choir loft. He came back the next day just intrigued with what he heard. That night, Billy Graham trusted Jesus Christ as his personal savior. I used all these big names because I wanted to show you, you have no idea. Edward Kimball had no idea what he was doing that day when he was leading and talking to that young man in that shoe store. All he knows is that he was shy and he was timid and that young boy was crude, illiterate, probably didn't amount to much, but Edward Kimball was faithful with what God put in front of him. He cared more about the individual than the crowd. And he was more concerned about the availability of the gift that he was given to teach. And because he did, God blessed and used in an incredible way. And I'm wondering today if there's some in here who've been sitting back and saying, I don't know if I can give, I don't know if I can do, because I don't know if my gift really matters. And I wanna say to you, leading from the second position is not bad. God could use you greater than you ever thought possible. Can God use average people? Praise his name, he can. And praise his name that he does it over and over.